0: 20 years ago, I was running an advertising agency called Capital C. It was Tuesday, began like any other morning. More often than not, I was the first one in, got the coffee pot going. It was time to kickstart my brain, organize my day. My office was right at the front door. People made their way in, people I depended on to deliver our promise of big ideas at work, they'd stick their head in, a little morning banter. I loved everything about who they were and what we did together, but my life, and your life changed at 8.46 a.m. that morning when American Airlines Flight 11 flew into the World Trade Center in, in Lower World Manhattan. Trade this
1: morning, you can see smoke billowing from the upper floors of the World Trade Center, and it's an unconfirmed report that it may well have been a plane that crashed into the side of that. It just
0: happened a short time ago. We're trying to get some more information. 17 minutes later, at 9.03, the South Tower was hit by United Airlines Flight 175. Both of the towers of the World Trade Center are now affected. This has, uh, this second explosion has uh, just happened. We're still looking at debris, still raining down, and now uh, from Tower Number 2. Within an hour and 42 minutes, both towers collapsed. But they weren't done yet. Third flight, American Airlines Flight 77, crashed in 907 of the west side of the now Pentagon. Of an explosion at uh, the U.S. Pentagon in Washington. And the fourth plane, United Airlines Flight 93, Due to the heroics of passengers was diverted away from its intended target many believed to be the White House. As a leader of that small agency I was lost for words and as a human I was lost for humanity. Our entire agency jammed into the boardroom to watch the news and try to come to terms with our new reality. Searched for meaning and wondered what it meant to have war in our home. In the immediate aftermath of the attack suspicion fell on Al-Qaeda The United States launched the war on terror and invaded Afghanistan to depose the Taliban. Hunt down, Bin Laden.
2: We will not relent until justice is done and our nation is secure. What our enemies have begun, we will finish.
1: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC
0: Today, my guest in Chatter That Matters is Kevin Newman, one of North America's most respected news anchors and investigative reporters. He was there back then, and for the next 20 years, he has investigated and reported back to you and I the realities, the consequences of decisions, and the aftermath. Kevin Newman, you'll soon learn, is a journalist who chases the truth, who doesn't fear chasing disruption, and whose connection to Afghanistan began on 9-11, but continues up to the day. Kevin, welcome to Chatter That Matters.
2: Great to be here, Tony.
0: Kevin, your career in television journalism is unequaled in Canada. You've been the host, managing editor, if I get this right, CTV's investigative series W5, host and executive editor of Global National, co-host of ABC's Good Morning America, host of CBC's Midday, and I'm only halfway through, (laughs) national international correspondent for World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, Nightline with Ted Koppel, and parliamentary correspondent for CBC, The National, CTV, National News, and Global News. Before we put you in the anchor's chair on 9/11, I just curious. Take us back to your early days and how
2: this incredible career all began. Where'd you grow up? Mostly in Mississauga, Ontario. My parents had moved us there from Montreal. I guess I was about nine, and um, you know, lived a typical middle class life. A lot of time on my bike. Uh, hanging out in the neighborhood and then uh, after that went on to Western University. But yeah, I'm a suburban boy.
0: What was family life like? You talk about the bike and stuff, but was it a kind of family where when I, I interviewed Megan Toohey in the New York Times, she said we always had conversations about what was happening. That's that's how I fell in love with journalism. What where was the, the seeds that were planted that would one day
2: ladder you into this incredible career? It was pretty early in those years in Mississauga. I, I remember the moon landing. We were playing outside, it was getting dark. And I remember looking up at the moon and thinking, apparently there's somebody standing on that thing. So we went inside, gathered around the old black and white TV and could barely make out what we were seeing. If you were a kid in 1969, it it wasn't clear what you were seeing. But what I did see was Walter Cronkite and Wally Schirra. And Walter, it seemed to me, had next to the astronaut themselves maybe, the next best job. He got to sit outside of where rockets go off he got to talk to astronauts, get excited at watching things in real time and he seemed to be a fellow who every time something big and historic happened he was there. And and then I became a news junkie even as a teenager. I was not like my family. My my family was sort of aware but you know when I was 15, I remember biking home excitedly from school because it was the Quebec referendum and you know Canada was on the line and there were all sorts of high stakes. So I became a a real news junkie, and that's probably what led me to feed my addiction.
0: (laughs) So you go to Western, and later on in life, they give you an honorary doctorate. I listened to your message to the class, and you talk about the generation that you were addressing, the kids in the audience, you hadn't been back for 30 years, that we'd become the most consequential generation in more than a century. Was that
2: just to make them feel good, or is that something you truly believe and if so, why? I was given one of the first iPads in Canada by a friend and I read the commencement speech off the iPad. The iPad to me and the generation that was going to build their lives on that kind of structure, I I think I remember telling them, you are really, really good at not hanging on To what you're given. Your your natural instinct it seemed to me as a generation was to be disruptive and that I felt that would be the most consequential part of of what they did is that they would take things and then they would take them apart. Putting them back together is the really hard work. It's easy to be disruptive to the point of okay well we're not going to do it that way anymore but then what you build after that becomes liberating in that you're not sort of tied to the original thinking but at the same time you can't just always take things apart. To me that kind of holds up that what we've seen in the past 10 to 15 years since that speech has been massive disruption. It's just been, you know, on the political end, on the technological end, uh, the institutions are being disrupted. They have been consequential. Now, what's being built, I think, is only now coming into fruition. They're looking at work in different ways. They're looking at what their expectations of life are in different ways. We're starting to see what they build after having challenged and disrupted uh, what they were given.
0: Do you think we are capable of rebuilding? Because when I look now, I see so much effort being placed on canceling the past. But the sense of reinvention. I'm not talking so much the technology and the apps and how the worlds within Arms Reach should desire. But do you see society coming to the middle where it's always being created, where the strength of numbers, where people collaborate even when they don't agree? Do you think that's still happening? Or do you think that we're now in a point where we're so polarized that
2: we're, we're, we're building our own castles? We're not building bridges. Yeah, no, Tony, that's, that's exactly what I see. We're living in, in a time. That is very perilous. When you disrupt institutions, when you when you disrupt the way things get done, you're you're quite often um, in in a position of not being able to recognize how to come back together. And I do worry about that a lot. I've got a grandson now. Um, I think a lot about what kind of world he's emerging into, and I can't quite see it. How we move from this moment in time when you're right, people are having their prejudices reinforced. We've stopped listening to one another. We've stopped thinking that. Things that are gray are in fact perhaps wiser, and that we've added more knowledge to begin to question what was black and white in our own minds. Now, that's not to mean it won't happen. It just may mean that we're in a point in time where experimentation, where creativity, where our ability to connect needs to be refashioned in a way. But right now, a year and a half after a pandemic, I, I can't see where we come back together because the forces that are pushing us apart are so strong. Tell us a little bit
0: about what brought you down to the US because it's not that often that Canadian journalists get to go into that market and succeed the way you succeeded.
2: What led me to the US was kind of being fired from a job in Canada. I was working at the CBC and I had hosted a show called Midday and I got a call one day uh, from the bosses saying that they had given that job to somebody else. And then one morning, I'm not a religious man, but I did ask for help. And I said, tell me what to do. Give me a sign, Like, I'll, I'll quit and go back to managing a McDonald's if that's if that's what's in it for me. And then that very same morning, I walked into my dressing room and there was a call waiting on my phone and it was ABC in New York saying, we'd like to talk to you.
0: Hi, this is Tony Chapman. This is Chatter That Matters. When we come back, Kevin Newman, is gonna take us back to 9-11 how his world and all of ours changed.
2: We wanted to disrupt the television landscape a little bit in Canada by um, putting national news on the dinner hour, and we wanted it to have a very different voice. All right, everybody.
1: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Kevin Newman. skills as an anchor and investigative reporter has won over audiences across north america so this proud canadian comes back because global decides they're going to launch a national news show tough competition ctv cbc what did you do or think about to
2: make global stand out in a very competitive space you're the marketing expert but my bet was that we shouldn't just compete with them in their space so there was a lot of late night evening news in, in Canada and at that time drawing large numbers. So Global had decided sensibly I thought to try to do the same thing at the supper hour. I had watched ESPN a lot and what ESPN had done to news was they had you know, done to sports rather was that they had taken it very seriously but they had talked in a different way, a little more casually, a little more like people talked. It wasn't the announcing from the mound, this is the summation of knowledge that we have created and here is what I think about it and here's what you need to know. It was more to speak like, um, hey, something cool is going on and this is why we think it matters. We spent about five months researching. I met uh, a couple of people in the marketing area. I said, you know, what's the the brand problem with, with Global News and somebody said to me and it stuck in my head, it's a really nice place to get a really weak cup of coffee. And so I thought, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. So then what you have to do to succeed is you have to add a bit of espresso. In order to stand out in in that marketplace and to be unique within that brand, we were a little more ballsy, but we chose to talk about was a little edgier. We gave our reporters not only the right to not wear a tie, but to talk in a different way and to talk like real people.
0: So you start off in this journey, less than a week in the job, September 11th.
2: York City right now it appears that
0: an airplane has crashed into the World Trade Center right? oh my god another plane has just hit it hit another building flew right into the middle of it explosion as an anchor you have to somehow digest and immerse yourself in everything that's around you have to be getting context and content from everywhere and somehow with some sense of objectivity and bury your personal emotions and tell these stories how do you do that?
2: Well, it is the skill you develop. You develop almost two brains. You have your input brain for the information that's coming into you and you're right, especially in a live, horrible news event like 9-11, there's a lot of information being fed to you. Now, your control room and other journalists have filtered some of it, but ultimately it's up to you what you choose to say and there's no script. It's important that you keep calm because people are looking to you for emotional cues and if you're afraid, a lot of people are going to be very afraid. You only venture into areas where you have some level of certainty or reasonable certainty might be true. So on that day, there were all kinds of rumors, all kinds of fragments of information. We had heard at one point that Capitol Hill had been hit when it hadn't. And you have to remember this was before everybody had a camera and could tell us what was going on. Largely, all information was fed through transmission towers. So we didn't see a lot and we couldn't confirm a lot because we didn't have ey- eyewitnesses there other than reporters. And For me too, you're right, I mean, it was only six days at the beginning of Global National but it was only 30 days since my family had moved from that area. I We had lived in New Jersey, I had traveled through the World Trade Center to get to work every day. So, <clears throat> it it was personal and it was real and I knew. Some of my neighbors from the town we lived in in New Jersey had worked in the Twin Towers. Wow! So for that part of it, I internalized it, but I couldn't sit with that thought. I had to just continue to move on. And you know, it's, it's We're not first responders, but it's the same thing for cops and firefighters. You 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 see things that, and you hear things that you don't always share with everybody, and you absorb those things. And I even twenty years later, I cry probably most quickly uh, at the thought of nine eleven. When they invaded Afghanistan afterwards,
0: because I know how much you've been involved in trying to understand that arc. Do you think that this part of your life is something you've personalized the most because you were there nine you've gone to Afghanistan, you've experienced what was going on and you've tried to put context to it. You've tried to talk about why it matters and why it doesn't matter. Do you think
2: this is one of the things that you would define your career over? Yeah, this was my generation's big story and greatest tragedy, it turns out. You know, that moment of 9 eleven was a shock. Um, anybody old enough to remember it will know that until that point, what happened that day was almost absurd, that nobody could have imagined that someone would drive a jet into a building. It's When that happened, it seemed like anything was possible, that there was a cruelty, and a fear that, my God. Afterwards, we worried about dirty bombs in subways. Um, the ABC newsroom that I had worked in received poisonous ricin letters. I remember being in Vancouver, and they were telling people in Vancouver to gaff or tape your window just in case a radiological bomb had arrived at Vancouver's port. It was mind bending. And, and then, you know, the responses were an attack on Iraq. And then, the Afghan war was the first war that any correspondent had fought that was combat in two generations. So we, we had a newsroom of very young reporters, all of whom had come through local news, some of whom had had a little tiny bit of international experience, but not much. And then we said, go cover this war. We didn't even own a flak jacket as a news organization. There were so many things that were brand new to everybody that forged our generation of reporters to this point, And I know we'll talk about this later, where what we've seen happening in Afghanistan feels incredibly personal.
0: I've been a fan of yours your entire career. I've met you many times and I'd say your finest hour wasn't in front of a camera. It's the words that you wrote to describe how Canada has abandoned all in Afghanistan who helped our soldiers over there. And you've pulled no punches. You've Called out our government and said, "What you're saying is not true." What motivated you to write at that level?
2: I don't have a responsibility to an audience at this point. I don't. I can. I can speak for myself solely. And for journalists, it's kind of weird to put "I" into a column, an opinion column. But I. I I've been doing that lately, and the reason is is simple. I watched what. Some government officials, some ministers were saying about what the situation was with the evacuation of the Afghan interpreters, but I had another window. I've been volunteering with a group of veterans and they are in daily, hourly touch with 200 former interpreters and their families who are still in Kabul. And I was hearing from them, this was not going well at all. They were being asked to do ridiculous cartwheels and paperwork that whoever was driving this rescue effort forgot that there was a target on these people's backs, that we were, we were drowning them in process when they were facing the fear of certain death. And there was no sense of urgency. I couldn't believe it. There was no immigration path for these people. Basically our immigration ministry was saying, yeah, you can apply as a normal immigrant, but you know, Tony, that takes tens of thousands of dollars in legal bills and time that they didn't have. We know these people, we know they're fine people. We know how they prove their loyalty to us already. And yet we're putting them through the ringer at a time when they're on the run. And that just seemed inhumane to me. I began to write what I knew to be true, which was that we were giving people in a desert without access to internet, who were fearful, 72 hours to fill out the kind of paperwork that would challenge you or I, it was more complex than a tax form. There was an absurdity to it that when I watched the briefings of officials and ministers where they would blithely say, this is the, it's remarkable what's going on. It's incredible what we're able to do to help. And they weren't. I may have been emotionally compromised in this moment, but in another way, I think thank heavens someone was. Do you think this is going to hurt Trudeau's efforts to get reelected? Some poli- political operatives will say nobody votes on foreign affairs, but there are moments where this becomes personal. In 2015, um, that little boy's body that was washed up in the Mediterranean Sea and a Syrian refugee, that was a searing moment. And in many ways, Trudeau captured our feelings about it, pledging to be open-hearted and move 40,000 Syrians into Canada very, very quickly.
0: Hi, this is Tony Chapman. When we come back, Kevin Newman chats about an upcoming documentary, Disruption, 20 Years of Global National. And he also talks about why now, more than ever, journalism matters. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. A big shout out to RBC for investing some of their media dollars into Canadian journalism. Here's what our Min Huska head of media has to say.
3: We as marketers, I feel we have a moral obligation to support, to keep them in the business, to help them to fund the newsroom, because the newsroom journalists cost money. They are highly trained people. It's actually very good results for us.
0: Journalism matters to RBC.
3: When I look at the
2: early stories, the first six episodes of Global National, news was softer. And so that original plan that we spent five months thinking about and executed for all of six days uh, was for an era that it turns out didn't last very long. Welcome
0: back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Kevin Newman, whose career as a journalist, investigative reporter and anchor spans North America and many places in the world. Kevin, you are very involved with creating a documentary titled Disruption, 20 Years of Global National. Thank you for the
2: sneak peek, by the way, it was exceptional. So why did you choose the title? That was a joint title. Um, When you look back, you have to figure out what is the story of, and you have to figure out what is the story of something. You have to figure out where your starting point is. So, you know, for Global National, six days on the air as a brand new national newscast, 9-11 happens. If that's your starting point, then you see 9-11 as the beginning of the world kind of turning upside down. Before 9-11, the news business, you'd get one or two big stories a year and then the rest you'd be sort of struggling to make people care. After 9/11, people cared about the news again, and there were wars, there was uh, the creeping surveillance society, the arrival of of the iPhone and the ability of anybody to film video and share it anywhere. So there were a whole lot of very significant and substantial changes linked by the theme of disruption.
0: I'm a big fan of documentaries and I always Say, how does that change me? What, what am I thinking about? And what I really thought about differently is how you personalized the people in the news and it's raw. I mean, you talk about crying after 9-11, after being on air for 16 hours. What price did journalists pay who are that immersed in disruption in terms of how they go about their everyday?
2: Well, as Crystal puts it in the documentary and she puts it so well, and it's true, we wear a lot of the stories that we cover. We expose ourselves to trauma, help ourselves by imagining that we're giving people the right to speak who may not feel that they've been heard. But the accumulation of that over time is hard. I've been dealing in my own retirement with the you know, residual uh, traumatic damage of seeing so much sadness in the world for four decades. It's, um, it's, it's not an easy life. And one of the reasons I wanted people to feel comfortable exposing that, the reporters, and I wanted viewers to see it is because mainstream journalism has such a bad name right now. Somehow puppet masters of power and government and that we spread lies and, and, and don't, don't care. The truth is the opposite. We do care. Our families know how much uh, we give to this because it's all in. We have to approach stories with a level of empathy that exposes our hearts to damage. I felt very strongly that in this era where mainstream journalism is under constant assault, and these people are under constant assault from others, that it was important that everybody understand that we bleed, uh, we care, uh, we suffer. We have to deal with it in a way that pushes it down and pushes it away, which is never healthy. Kevin, how do you come to terms with, you know, Hollywood's
0: narrative has always been, you know, the the idealistic kid that wants to become a lawyer to change the world and then eventually sells out to the system. But a journalist of your integrity, when someone like a CNN or Fox would knock on your door, I'd have to argue that they have a particular slant because they are so convinced of being right or left that they're trying to shape biases versus maybe find that middle ground how do you come to terms with that knowing that that as well as part of the profession and the part of the profession that probably stains you the most
2: yeah no i i totally agree with that tony and i wish that you know cnn wouldn't call itself a news network i wish fox news wouldn't call itself a news network because they're opinion networks and that's damaging journalism overall because you know, in, the, in their pursuit of, of ratings, and that's what's driving it. It's, there's no higher purpose other than my ratings are bigger than your ratings. I make more money than you make. You're clouding what news is. I have never said that journalists don't have opinions. They don't have personal opinions. How can you not with all you see? You can be outraged. You can be um, joyous, all, all those things. But one of the qualities of good and effective journalism is that you take what you see, how you feel, what your opinion of it is, and you challenge it in yourself and you say, okay, well, how else could this have been
0: seen? So in Canada, I could argue that the newspapers sort of line up from one party to another, and maybe that's just always been the way newspapers are. But when we put taxpayer dollars in private broadcasting, when we put $600 million, do, do you feel that those broadcasters can maintain their objectivity, knowing that one party might be in favor of providing much-needed subsidies that will keep people working versus another party that
2: isn't? Or do you think that you can compartmentalize that? I think you can compartmentalize that. I've worked at the CBC, I've worked at Global, I've worked at CTV. There is always uh, pressure. You understand, for instance, at the CBC, there's the pressure of being partially funded by the government. In private television, there's the pressure of being funded by advertisers. There's always an understanding that someone might give you a call and say, why are you being so harsh or whatever? But if you're doing your job as a journalist, that's not really part of your calculation. And I can say with a hundred percent honesty that when I worked at the CBC, there's nobody who came to me and said, you're being a little hard and the government can ease off. Never. In a good and effective newsroom, that stops before it gets to the level of the reporter. In television in private television i occasionally got calls from owners of the network that said you're being awfully you know uh, hard on you know the israelis or you're being hard on the palestinians or you know there's all that kind of stuff and you just have to say okay thank you for that but um, if i i did my homework this is what i saw this is how i balanced it and you have to defend it but ultimately it's up to each reporter to say no and put their job on the line which i've had to do on occasion to say that well i'm not going to say what you want me to say so you'll have to hire someone else if you think that that's going to happen only once uh, i had to withdraw from um, a position where i felt uh, an advertiser had undue influence over the content uh, of a newscast and uh, i protested it That's what you might imagine the impression is, that the government is pulling the strings of the CBC, that corporate Canada is pulling the strings of private broadcasting. But ultimately, every discussion I've had is, okay, so I'm hearing this from other people, but it's up to you what you report. And as long as you've got the guts to report what you believe to be true, there's protection.
0: If Kevin Newman could change news and how it's absorbed and how it's interpreted and how it's actioned, what would Kevin Newman, who's one of the most acclaimed journalists that North America has seen, what would you do?
2: I would start on the private side, punishing companies for not understanding that their right to broadcast is a public trust. There have been examples where, uh, I don't know if you remember in Hamilton, where a corporate entity went into bankruptcy. Fired all of some unionized employees, and then reemerged a couple of days later as an entirely new entity. Hired the ones that agreed to work for a lower wage at a time when the company uh, was overall still profitable. The CRTC doesn't seem to punish anyone for for taking these kinds of actions. If if you look at at the returns of our media conglomerates, they're they're enormously profitable, and and yet they continue every quarter to slice their news operations, and the CRTC doesn't make any demands that, you know, they take some of the shareholder value that they're returning in large quantities every single quarter and reinvest that in news. So that's a regulatory issue. For journalists themselves, I think I would start admitting that we've done a very poor job of explaining what we do. Our piousness needs to be checked, show more humility in what we don't know instead of passing ourselves off as experts in areas that we shouldn't. And for the platforms, that they would give journalistic organizations some money for the content that they take for free. Nobody should be able to walk into a store and steal what they want and then turn around and resell it and take all the profit from it when someone else has built that thing. So that has to be fixed. You can't continue to take people's content, um, even if it's with their permission, and, and provide nothing left to them to create that content. And that's not only true in journalism. You know, that's that's been true in television. But journalism in particular doesn't seem to have a champion in that.
0: We come back, Kevin Newman opens up about his relationship with his son, Alex, and how his all-consuming career didn't necessarily feed the needs of his family.
1: Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment on the iHeartRadio Talk Network.
0: One of the building collapsed.
2: It was hard, we went on for 16 hours and we, did, we didn't buckle. But after those 16 hours, uh, I drove home and it was a beautiful sunny blue sky day in Vancouver with the North Shore Mountains. And uh, I pulled over to the side and I cried uncontrollably for about 30
1: minutes. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman presented by RBC.
0: Welcome back to Chatter That Matters, my special guest, Kevin Newman, whose career in television journalism is unequaled and unmatched in Canada. But with success comes a price. Kevin, I don't know if you remember this, but I was the opening keynote at Canada 3.0. It was an important conference in the future of technology. You're the master of ceremonies. At that conference, you introduced me to your son, Alex, and he was mastering uh, technology to animate content. You were so excited about this incredible fusion of what he could bring to the news. But beneath the surface of this proud dad talking about the sun and the smiles that you two had, It sounded like you two were struggling as father and son, because together you wrote an incredible book, All Out, A Father and Son Confront the Hard Truths That Made Them Better Men. Tell me how all this came about, and what did you each learn from writing this book?
2: Oh, man, we learned so much. And it's a good thing we lived in the same city for three years as adult men, and Alex now lives in Australia and has been trapped there now for a good year and a half because of COVID. So. I'm really glad we did this hard work while we still lived in the same city and had proximity because it's built a, an incredible foundation for our relationship. I, I came to realize through my own reporting and my own reflection that while I had done everything I thought a good dad should do when your child comes out to you, he didn't see it as I saw it. That I thought I'd done the right thing by embracing him, by hugging him, by uh, trying to guide him through. but. He didn't believe me. He thought I was homophobic and I, and I was to a degree. It made me wonder like, what do our kids actually think about the lies that we provided? And I had a lot of guilt about it. While he was being bullied as a boy, I, I couldn't defend him. I felt uh, I hadn't been there for my daughter at certain points when she was in crisis as much as I wanted to because I had these very big jobs with big responsibilities and We actually approached the book first as a family with all four of us writing and got halfway through it. And the publisher looked at it and said, you know, the the women in your life are saints. They're they're just all a good news story. But if good fiction and if good drama is the conflict, then it's you and your son. So we started writing the book over. Uh, I would write my recollections of certain points in our lives together. Alex would do the same. And we never talked about our views of that uh, until each of our manuscripts were finished. And we exchanged the manuscripts at a big long desk and we read each other's stories about the same events in our lives. We read about each other through our own lens. It was remarkable. The experience and, and, and the parenting that we think we understand we gave our children is not necessarily how it's received. It was remarkable. I didn't realize that in the coming out process, Alex had been so unhappy and so sure that he would be rejected by his parents who had given him nothing but complete love but he was convinced that we would reject him and he was close to suicide he didn't know that i had been bullied when i was a kid and that some of the reasons that i reacted the way i did was to protect him from the experiences that i had had it was a revelation to both of us and it humanized each of us you know as men and not as father son, but as individuals who had gone through the same time, lived in the same house, but had two very different experiences. What is next for Kevin Newman? Oh man, I'm in such a beautiful stage in life. I don't have to create, you know, money from retirement. I was very fortunate to have a good career and. So I have options and I have curiosity that that's the constant driver of my life. But mostly if I feel I can have impact, I will get involved. If uh, the likelihood of me making a difference isn't there, then I won't.
0: Kevin, I always end my podcast with the three things that I've learned. Number one, which I think is so powerful, when you have weak coffee, at espresso. So often we throw out ideas because we we're told they're not good or they, they didn't resonate. And I loved your idea of saying we had something that was magic. It just needed a little more. Second one is this sense of curiosity. We so often leave curiosity behind. We become fed. And I think what you fought for through your entire career, I think what you still continue to fight for with your, your son is a sense of middle ground that not, don't just see how you see the world see it how others see it. And I think that if we as human beings had spent more time having curiosity to how other people's point of view and how they perceive reality, I think we'd be a much better human race. And I think the final one would be the state of journalism today. First of all, that journalists need a little bit more humility because they're part of the conversation, especially with citizen journalism. They no longer own it. But I think the biggest message that I learned is the social media platforms, these mega empires, these billion and trillionaire uh, organizations that they can't take the content without paying a price. Sometimes we think that we get these platforms for free, but the content that's on that platform, people have not been paid a fair wage for. So, Kevin Newman, always a pleasure, my friend. Uh, I'll let you get back to the uh, cottage today. There's no doubt you're probably going on a 30-kilometer canoe ride or something, but thanks for
2: joining me. Oh, man, it was such a thoughtful conversation, Tony. Thank you for all the work you put into it.
0: Joining me now on Chatter That Matters is Armin Haska. He's the head of media and agency relationships at RBC, a brilliant strategist. Armin, welcome. Thank you for having me, Tony. Armin, Kevin makes a compelling case on why journalism is important in Canada. What's the role of marketers
3: to ensure that
0: it continues to survive?
3: The the discussion is actually twofold. Obviously, yes, there is a decline by consumers uh, regarding trust in media outlets or in news outlets in specific uh, areas. Um, We've seen this in the U.S., we have seen this in many other countries, and we've seen the same trend in Europe or in Asia, everywhere. But the discussion is actually twofold. One is in the same research, if you would ask the same consumers around how much they trust the fifth estate so the journalistic uh, proper platforms, like a Globe, like a Torstar, like a Bell Rogers, a chorus, like owned and operated uh, news outlets and content distributors, they actually trust them with a high high level. We've seen that fake news etc. has been amplified massively over the last couple of years in platforms like Facebook or Google. The challenge though is is also that those companies are not really media companies, right? So they, they position themselves as technology companies and are just taking part of the responsibility, what is happening or posted or distributed on their platforms.
0: Kevin also talks about how social media is essentially just taking this content and exploiting it and monetizing it without giving anything back to the content creators. What's your view?
3: We as marketers, I feel we have a moral obligation to support, not in a charitable cause, because actually advertising in those Canadian-owned and operated media outlets is actually good for business. It's brand safe. It's high-quality content environment where if you run your ads in there, like we call it ad adjacency, it's actually very good results for us. But um, I think we have a moral obligation as advertisers because most of those companies rely on ad dollars. Yes, there are some outlets like CBC that get some taxpayer money, but to keep them in the business and to help them to fund the newsroom, because the newsroom journalists cost money. They are highly trained people. Um, we need to support by overcoming the media density issue. Uh, you know, all of us advertisers, we're drinking the Kool-Aid from those Silicon Valley companies and... The result is that 80% of that $20 billion advertising industry goes straight into their pockets. The cards are really stacked against the Canadian-owned and operated companies, right, which are fighting for the breadcrumbs that are left over. This is not a sustainable model, and I don't want to picture a world where there is no fifth estate, proper professional content distribution with proper professional content Research by journalists, posted by journalists. That's my personal opinion, to be honest.
0: Armin Huska, always a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Tony. This is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. Let's chat soon.
1: Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.